0: Hola, this is Enrique Morones of Gente Unida with another podcast of Buen Hombre, Magnificent Mujer. Every Tuesday, we have people in the know, people you should know, real change makers and influence makers. And it's very important for us to hear their stories because they can influence you like they have influenced me. Some of the people are well-known, some of the people are not so well-known, but every one of them is very, very important. And today we have a very special Buen Hombre, a good friend and uh, somebody that uh, I've gotten to know, especially this this past year. And his name is Magdaleno Leno Rose Avila, best known as Leno. Leno, como estas? How are you okay. doing, my brother? Muy bien, gracias. gracias. Thank you.
1: It's great to be with you.
0: Yeah, likewise. Uh, where, where are you right now? I know that uh, you, you're kind of uh, on both both coasts. Physically, where are you right now? Yeah, Not I'm,
1: spiritually, physically. I'm trying to split my time. I'm in Stone Mountain, Georgia, with my wife and uh, and my daughter, who works for UPS out here. Stone Mountain used to be a major headquarters for the Ku Klux Klan. And on Stone Mountains, there's some etchings that honors the Klan. But a lot of this neighborhood over the years has turned into African-Americans. So it's good to be here.
0: The irony of having have been a, a clan headquarters, and now we have our African-American brothers and sisters with a strong presence there. That's really great
1: that, uh, that
0: they're in there now. Yeah, that right. they've moved in. Well, Leno is, is best known. Uh, well, he's actually got a very diverse history, but one of the things that he's very well known for is his poetry. He's an excellent poet, a wonderful activist. He's got a, quite a history. And Leno, in my previous lives, when I've had radio shows or podcasts, I always like to begin by having the person introduce themselves. So when somebody asks you, who is Leno? You know, talking about your, you know, you grew up and all that type of stuff. Why don't you give us a little uh, notes version of who is, who is Leno?
1: All right. Uh, this is where I get to do creative speaking and uh, embellish things. Uh, the, um, I'm, a, I'm a product of uh, immigrant parents who came from Mexico to Colorado. I, uh, we were very poor. My parents uh, had 12 kids. I was the sixth and wasn't the brightest of the 12, uh, clearly. I had nine sisters who were much sharper than me. I started doing farm work when I was 11. I joined the migrant stream when I was 13. At uh, age 17, I graduated from high school and went to San Diego, California to work and uh, ended up going to Palomar College. My first job being a farm worker was uh, pruning citrus trees in uh, San Diego County. And I'd never seen a citrus tree and didn't know what I was doing. Pruning killed about 10 trees before they stopped me. and uh, But I still survived and I lived there and did all kinds of jobs, very active. Uh, over the years, uh, what happened, I was in uh, in the first early demonstrations at the University of Colorado where we got programs for minorities, uh, and that was around the death of Martin Luther King. i worked for a number of nonprofits. I, I worked for two union organizations. The first was Yecho uh, in Central Colorado, which was a lettuce strike. And our lettuce strike joined up with United Farm Workers Union. And I worked for them for about four years at $5 a week uh, for wages, 10 for food. Then later I came back to the union And that was in from 1970 to about 74 or five. And then I went back to work for the union in 1994, the year after Cesar died, to become the founding director of the Cesar Chavez Foundation. I've been a Peace Corps director in four different countries. I've worked for the Democratic National Committee. I've uh, probably one of my highlights in my life was uh, the work that I've done on Immigration and and CASA, which uh, you know, and a lot of people know is for me, the founding organization of immigrant rights. And that's where I learned about immigrant rights and started doing work around that issue in 1975. But it was not profitable. uh, It was not um, accepted in many communities, including the Chicano community was slow and the unions were slow to come to the movement. but and i've worked in uh, golly fudge i've worked on immigration issues i've worked on gmo issues i've uh, been an advocate for a lot of the oppressed people but most importantly that i think people should know that uh, enrique like you and i and other people who have been involved in the movement is that you, we didn't get a degree in it we experienced it we did it you know i was a raso candidate i worked with Corky and uh, Gonzalez in Colorado and and when when we start you know you you don't nobody says that, that this is a role you should play I didn't know what I was doing I was afraid of my first strike or my first demonstration and and to be quite clear growing up in Las Animas Colorado there were uh, Chicanos Chicanas who were much smarter much better and I'm just you know, people say, well, when you looked at your barrio, where did you see yourself? Or if you look at the Seven Dwarfs, I was probably dopey in my barrio. I was slow learning. <laughs> uh, you know, I couldn't read or write in English or Spanish when I graduated from high school. And the vatos and the, and, the, and la, las mujeres del barrio that were really good is they did not put up with the racism in the schools and a lot of them left. A lot of them left because they had to work. Uh, and uh, so, and some went to prison, and a lot of the, the Vatos died in the Vietnam War. And if you look at them, growing up to them, there were philosophers, artists, dancers, singers in our barrios. Even today, for those of us who may be out in the public uh, ionosphere, there are people in our own barrios today that have much more creative issues and ideas to offer than we have platforms for them to. Excel in, and that is the real crime. Because I think if I could get out and do some things, the other people that were much smarter, that were my teachers in the barrio, they could have done even more. And so I'm always humbled by remembering who my teachers were, who I learned from, and and where I got to be where I am. That's sort of where I am. You know, I'm a I'm a Chicano uh, that came out of the Tlat movimiento La Raza Unida. I had my hard knocks and as you know along the way it's not a smooth road and I've spent a lot of time in poverty because people didn't believe in what I wanted to do so I had to do it for free. And one of the one of the great experiences I had was my wife took a job in El Salvador with Save the Children in 96. I quit the Cesar Chavez Foundation, went down there and I started working. Um, with gang members that had been deported, 18th Street and Mara Salvatrucha. And people said I was crazy, that these homies were gonna kill me. And uh, they didn't want to accept me at first because I was a Chicano. And Chicanos weren't very accepting of Salvadorians when they first started coming into LA. But eventually we did the the first and largest ever demographic study done on gangs. We interviewed 1,025 gang members. This was a study organized with the Jesuit University, designed with the help of gang members. They implemented the study and they helped analyze it. And out of that grew an organization which is called Unidos, which I founded. And uh, with the help of gang members in El Salvador, and then we went to LA and, and uh, formed a chapter. And that chapter's a great leader right now is Alex Sanchez a former MS gang leader in Los Angeles, Salvadorian. And what I found out in, when I started working with the gang members that I thought I was gonna be their teacher. And as, as happens in so many instances, I found out that they were teaching me instead. I learned more from the gang members than I think I taught them, but we were able to share and, uh, and build. And it was very dangerous in El Salvador I had threats on my life. We had uh, five of our leadership killed by police and other gangs. And I had, uh, we had drive-by shootings of our office by people who didn't agree with me. But I always respected and still respect the gangs, the gang culture, because it's always going to exist. As long as society remains racist and classist and doesn't allow everybody to have the same chance, we're going to have gangs. We're gonna have an underground movement and that's what they are. And in the gangs, I found, are some of the brightest people, smartest. If you can survive on the streets of LA, San Diego, uh, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, on the streets, you gotta have something going for yourself. And so I honor the homies, wherever they live, wherever they are, because they have a lot to offer and we just have to figure out how to channel that. Their leadership folks, as you know. That's about their right. version.
0: Well, that's a very powerful uh, uh, you know, thumbnail biography of the many things that you've been involved with. And, and let's go back a little bit, because so, I want to talk about many of those uh, different, different uh, chapters in your life. Back to Colorado and being one of 12 children, uh, Corky Gonzalez. Um, and uh, the influence on Corky Gonzalez, rest in peace, and uh, you know his writings, Josue uh, Joaquin, etc. Uh, what can you tell us about Corky Gonzalez and having known him when you were in Colorado?
1: Well, I was a I was a young man. I was in college, and uh, we started hearing about the, the Chicano movement. Corky was a former Democratic committee man. He was a, a bail bondsman, he was a, a a very good boxer at his weight level. And then, you know, we said people started talking about Chicanos and this is about 68. And then in 69, there were a bunch of walkouts in Colorado and, and Corky and the Crusade for Justice, which was his organization. Um, they organized the first march in Denver. We'd never had a Chicano March in Denver. So, and we were just getting used to being, being Chicanos and being proud and yelling Chicano power. So what they did is they organized four marches coming from the four directions, like the four winds of four directions. And we met towards the Capitol. And it was amazing to see tens of thousands of Chicanos marching with their bandanas, their buttons, raising their fists, uh, Chicanos and Chicanas. And, uh, and to get to this rally, and I'd never been to a rally like that. You know, I'd done demonstrations before around King's death, but nothing this powerful with so many Latinos. And Corky, I believe, was wearing one of his famous red shirts. Uh, and he has dark hair and a strong voice. And he got up and he said everything about uh, the racism the gringos had perpetuated on us, that the employers had perpetuated on us, things the police had done to us that we were always afraid to say, but he said it in public. And he demanded our rights in public. And we could never have been prouder. And Corky and the Crusade became a national symbol for a lot of people. They did some of the first youth conferences. Uh, They had a lot of organizing. They inspired a lot of people. Eventually, with uh, Jose Angel Gutierrez, helped build uh, the Razonida party, and I was a candidate. And, you know, in the movement, if you look at all the people that came out of the movement that were early on, including Bert Corona, uh, Reyes Tijerina, uh, José Ángel Corky, Cesar, none of them were perfect. Nobody gave us a training school on what we were to do. They were all responding to people's needs. So about, uh, I don't know, it must have been about three weeks or two weeks before Corky died. and. Uh, I was in, uh, I'd been living in uh, Washington state and I was at the University of Colorado Boulder at a conference and they told me Corky had just gotten out of jail. He'd had a, an aneurysm and they didn't know how long he's going to live. So I called his wife and, uh, and his older daughter and I said, can I come over and talk to Corky? So I went to Corky and Corky couldn't remember me He had like a a split in his brain where he remembered some things about his history and some things he didn't. But he didn't remember me and his wife and his older daughter, Nita. Say, you remember Magdaleno? You remember Leno from the farm workers, He said, I no, I don't. But I read Corky. I said, Corky, I'm gonna read you some poems. So I read him some poems, some that were dedicated to him, to the Chicano movement, and I thanked him. I thanked him because a lot of the people that give to our community, they never get thanked. And I didn't want to go thank him at his funeral. I wanted to thank him when he was alive. And even as ill as he was, he still looked strong and handsome. And I read him poems and he wept a little bit. And I said, Corky, do you want me to read you more poems? He said, yeah. I said, well, you don't have much choice. I said, you can't get out of the chair by yourself. So I read him more poems, but. I really—it mean, was an honor—and uh, he died about a week later. But uh, it was an honor to go and thank him for what he did. He and all well, of California, Texas, Arizona, New Mexico—who led us—we uh, we got to thank him.
0: That's very uh, uh, I'm grateful that you were able to do that. Um, yeah, such an icon and such an influence on so many people, and I could relate to a lot of the things that you're saying. How oftentimes. Um, you know, these people are out there, and when you're in the audience, like I've been, and you hear somebody at that microphone, inside there's a stirring. You're saying, oh, right on. That person really knows exactly, you know, what I'm feeling or what I'm going through. That's a very, very powerful um, testimony and something that I could definitely relate to, talking about the four winds, that indigenous tradition, you know, when you see the, the, uh, the dancers and, and, and paying respect to the four winds or the four directions. That's very, very powerful, and, and as you know, recently, we lost another uh, leader who was also influenced greatly by uh, Corky and others, Nativo Lopez, and I was at uh, the yes. service with Nativo and with, with Gil Cedillo and others, um, uh, you know, paying tribute to Nativo, and oftentimes... because I don't ever access the full versions, but I, are you looking at the Dropbox? I'm sorry? You can tell by how big the files are. I don't know. You lost me. Is this, but, but anyways, so as far as the, um, um, are you there, Leno? Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, as far as the, uh, kind of lost my train of thought here, as oh, far as the, Nat-
1: Nativo.
0: yeah. Well, Nativo Lopez. So Nativo Lopez, another, uh, icon in our community is, is, uh, is somebody that, uh, you know, we've got to remember, and hopefully we'll remember the people while they're with us, while they're still with us. And that's one of the reasons we have Buen Hombre Magnificent, to get the actual testimonies. And not too long ago, uh, we had this whole year, we're going to have the the, the 50th anniversary of Chicano Park. And I know you have a lot of stories there. And I remember when Corky's uh, children have come to Chicano Park. And I kind of did. I don't have the talent that you have as far as writing poetry. I mean, you're second to none and so forth. But that, but I did a kind of a version of, of I am Joaquin, and kind of updated it a few years back when when I was yeah when I was honored at, at the Chicano Park the annual celebration and I was the, the the keynote speaker and I remember the first thing I did was ask the family do you think this is okay because they invited me to den to Denver to give the presentation and do the same thing and that is so powerful that is so powerful these traditions need to live on and it's very important that people tell the stories. That were that were actually there, like you, because you have such a, a a tremendous history and you've done so many different things. That oftentimes you don't realize the impact on others. I am sure you've had people come up to you uh, that you didn't even know that you had ever influenced, and they'll say, "I was there when you spoke at you know at this at right. the Boulder the conference or whatever, and how they have gone on and done great things." So there's been there's been a lot of people, a lot of people that have been touched by your work. And I remember last year, I was speaking at, at the uh, League of Women Voters, and you were there. And, and, I, and I had, uh, I think I had the t-shirt on or something, right. that uh, Bad Hombre, because that was a previous podcast that I used to have. And then you came up and you said afterwards, and you said, oh, I wrote a poem, uh, Bad Hombre. And I thought, oh, that's fantastic. And then when you sent it to me, I thought, it is unbelievable. It is unbelievable what you wrote. It really moved me. And uh, later on, we, we would like you to read that poem because it's one of your many great poems and how much it has influenced um, so many people. So, so your many. work in writings and so forth is something that's very, very powerful. But you have done some very diverse things, like the fact that you were, you remember when, you know, we lost Martin Luther King, etc. And then the next thing you know it, and I know other things took place as well, but so, you were involved with social justice, Martin Luther King, Corky Gonzalez, et cetera, et cetera. And then you, um, you, you, you were involved with the Cesar Chavez Foundation, the Peace Corps, working with gangs and so forth. And when you mentioned uh, Homies Unidos, I have, I'm friends with Greg Boyle, Father Greg Boyle. And I remember when he was going to come and give the keynote speech at an event that I was holding. And he told me, like two days before, I'm so sorry. I can't go. You know, he's, he's got cancer and so forth. I'm going to send somebody that's going to be, uh, speak for me. And I thought, Oh my God, everybody's expecting father G and so forth. And it was Alex Sanchez. And I remember when he told this story, I thought, wow, this is incredible because he was telling his story. So the storytelling, you know, like Corky, like you, like Alex, like father G tattoos on the heart, et cetera is so powerful, but you lived a lot of these stories. So I'd like to hear a little bit more about uh, your being in, in El Salvador. I think that was in the mid-90s, how you ended up in El Salvador. and Because and, 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 a lot of us know a little bit about the, you know, the, the gangs and so on and so forth, but not like you, not like you, like being in the middle, like being right there in and, and, and the Marasar Salvatrucha, etc. So what was that experience like?
1: Well, let me just uh, go back since you brought up Father G, who's uh, one of my superheroes, and uh, he and I exchange on email once in a while. But G has been the example, and Catholic Church uh, deported him to San Antonio early on because they thought he was getting too powerful. But he has been a real spirit, and I like the way that he works with all the different gangs there. So he's a real model for us and he's a great man and people should honor him. And I'm glad that uh, I know him and we're friends and uh, he's a great supporter of mine and i am he's one of my heroes. But when because I had known him, I had known Barrios Unidos in Santa Cruz and other organizations. You know, when I was a uh, young man, I was in gang life. Uh, we'd had brass knuckles, uh, we had switchblades switch blades and chains. We didn't have these automatic weapons, you know. Yeah, we had zip guns, you had to get up close to shoot them. Uh, and uh, so I was deported to El Salvador uh, with my wife. She was working there and I was going to work on my book and then I went to a meeting to represent Save the Children. And I met these homies that had been deported. They knew all the good hamburger stands and taco places in Los Angeles that I used to go to. And I used to go to them because there were homies there. You felt good, you know. Tommy's original hamburger place in LA, you know, somebody come by, do a drive-by shooting, nobody got hurt, so we'd go back to our sandwiches. And when we would talk about those places, the guys were very interested. So I asked them, can I come out and go to your barrio and hang out? So for 90 days, every day, I went out and and hung around with gang members in their barrios and their parks then i go back in the late afternoon and tutor my teenage daughter on her studies but i learned a lot by you know how their organizations work what they respect what they do and they asked me after about 30 days they say well don't you have any questions about us and i learned early on you don't ask questions about what they did they want to tell you what they did uh, uh, what their thoughts were, they they give them to you. I said, no, I'm just here learning. And then we decided to do the demographic study. And when you're in a press community, you want to be careful about who you give your information to. So I had separate meetings with 18th Street leadership and MS leadership in El Salvador to get them on board with my ideas because they didn't know what I, you know, they really didn't know me. They were learning to know me. And for a while, some of them gave me the wrong apodos. They wouldn't give me the truth, the truthful name. So, uh, and I always was straight with the gangs. I never carried me about one gang or the other. So when uh, I would meet with the 18th Street in the morning, we'd go to Burger King, which is a big deal then. And we'd eat the sandwich, a double Whopper with cheese, Coke, large Coke, large fries. Two in the afternoon, I'd have the same sandwich with the MS leadership, and we'd talk about the same thing. And they would ask me, well, what are you telling the other guys? I said, the same thing. I'm being honest. And what I learned uh, working with the gang members is that uh, they really wanted you to be honest, and they t- gave you a lot of tests. Never lie to them. Always be upfront. You agree, agree, you disagree, agree. Be polite about it. One of the things that frustrated me, as we were starting Homies Unidos, because um, to sustain it, nobody would fund us. Later on, uh, Jane Fonda's uh, foundation funded us, the Agostino Foundation funded us, public welfare. But at first, nobody would do it. So I took out my retirement fund, which was about seventy thousand, racked up another thirty thousand on credit cards, to to do this, and people would say. Well, was it worth it working with gangs and spending all your money? I said, I have a sister who died on the streets from a drug overdose. And I made her promise the last time uh, that I spoke to her that in her name, I was going to help somebody. And I, and I said, I don't know if it was the gang members, but, and they said, well, was all that, you know, about a hundred thousand, was it worth it? I said, what a price do you pay on one life if you save one life? And in Homies Unidos, we've saved a lot of other lives. So we were working with um, the gang members, and you know, I want to teach them because I learned from Cesar Chavez about nonviolence and Dolores and Huerta and the Filipino brothers. And they started tagging, going to smoke a cigarette, going to the bathroom, they weren't paying attention. And I was really getting angry. I said, hey, homies, you know, I'm spending my money, my time, you're in my home, and uh, Why, why, why don't you pay any attention? And I thought, one night I said, either they're really dumb or I'm dumb. And I thought, well, maybe, I don't understand what interests them. So I figured out that they like going, we didn't have but one car, which is my Dodge van. And so they like going on trips for vans. So I started planning trips on vans. So we would go in the van and pile as many as we could, turn up the beat, you know, do a little hip hop music and play it loud, play it proud. And then I'd say, Hey, I turned the radio down. Did you see what they said in the newspaper about gangs? We'd have a little conversation. When it died down, turn the music back on, it'd go back and forth. And each time on each trip, the conversation became stronger and the music became less. And then finally, we were getting into the van one day, and one of the homies says, What are we talking about today? I go, Orale, I got him. I got him. And after that, we could have real in-depth conversations. But uh, you have to adjust yourself to the community you're working with. And I always uh, everything I did is I consulted them. Uh, We had to give court to a couple of homies that broke our rules as homies unidos. And uh, we used the gang structure and uh, except we weren't gonna use any violence, you know, once we gave them their sentence uh and you know we just ostracized them educated them a little bit so uh, at one point when i was moving to miami and i needed to leave one of the brothers in charge of the homies unidos office in salvador there's a really tough handsome guy ringo who was a 18th street guy we used to control all the drugs in his side of a prison in texas the chicano side and he said I've never run a nonprofit. And you know, he'd been my right-hand man for a while. And I said, Ringo, because we would give everybody a lesson plan, what are you going to do for the week to talk about nonviolence? Then at the end of the week, they fill out this report. We talk about the report. And if it was legitimate, then we gave them a viatico or some money to uh, sustain them in their work. And so I said, Ringo, when people fill out their work plans and you review them. If they don't do their work right, you give them uh, uh, two verbal warnings. And then the last warning, if they don't get it right, uh, you give them a, a written warning, so it's on record that they're not keeping up with the program. But I said, we don't do the kind of punishments we did in the joint or on the streets. Uh, no choking, no stabbing, no shooting. He says, yeah, I think I got it. I says, and he was a great administrator. He kept good records. I would uh, email him or send him via Western Union ten thousand bucks. we never had a dollar disappeared. Best record keepings. People would come from uh, NGOs from around the world, government representatives in El Salvador. They would see that our organ, our office was organized and clean, and because there's a lot of dust in the air in El Salvador, and the, and the rooms and everything gets real dusty. But you know, the people said, well. They expected, because it was gang members, is everything's going to be thrown all over the place. It's going to be disorganized. And uh, all these guys have been in jail. They've been in prison. So you got your cell. you got to keep it clean. you got to know where things are. And that's the way they did. So if there was nothing going on in a meeting, people are mopping and sweeping the floor and filing the papers, keeping everything in order, uh, hanging the pictures properly. The homies have a lot of class, and uh, and I, I learned to respect them. And uh, as I got on, it wasn't always a smooth road, because I got challenged by a lot of homies over my leadership and when they could take, up, take it over. And I would say, got to jump through these hoops, homes, and when you do it, uh, you'll be safe. And people were worried, because uh, I had my wife and my daughter there, and they said, I, don't you feel uh, in danger having gang members in your house? I said, uh, well, you know, once they're your perro and El Salvador, as we say, your chuchu or your dog, man, these guys will do anything for you. I felt safer for me and my family having gang members in my home than I would with anybody. How many people are gonna take a bullet for you? Gang members will. How many people are gonna protect your family and your property? Gang members will. If you respect them, and they respect you, and you gotta earn it. And not just gang members, but people from the barrio, the immigrant population. Uh, Enrique, you know, from working with the, on immigrant rights and and with people like that, that once you people show you show them that you're real, they'll do anything for you. And that's that's been the great thing about working with people. I want to talk about mm-hmm. three other people that I thanked, if you don't mind. Um, I was okay. able to thank Burr Corona when he was in a wheelchair. I saw him in the San Fernando Valley. His nephew was pushing him around. And I thanked him for, Burr Corona was one of the best orators that I've heard at Nativo and all of us came out of casa. And I also was able to thank Reyes Tijerina. I went and saw him uh, a couple of months before he passed away in El Paso. And recently I was able to thank Jose Angel Gutierrez Who's now living in the Inland Empire in California? So, there's a lot of people that we need to thank him. And they inspired us, and you and I and, and others are inspiring other people.
0: Hey Amen. I um, just recently spoke to the wife of the, the person that was my best friend for a long time. He passed away uh, 10 years ago. And to me, he's the icon of human rights along the border, the entire border talking about immigrants, and that's uh, Roberto Martinez, rest in peace, and his wife Yolanda. I was speaking to Yolanda recently, and we want to have her share the story in another podcast of Magnificent Mujer. And we, when you were talking about these people that you're thanking and the people that were instrumental in working with you in the uh, in Homies Unidos and the great work, I'll never forget last year, I was invited, or last year or the year, if I don't remember, to the Church of the Epiphany in LA. And they said, oh yes, that's what Travis used to come here and, and speak all the time. We want you to be the speaker. And uh, there's somebody that really wants to hear from you. And, and uh, so it's important that you're there and, and share your, your story, et cetera. And I go, well, who are you talking about? And they said, Martin Sheen. And I thought, I've met Martin Sheen a few times and I thought he's not gonna come to listen to me. But anyways, so I go up there and because of my, uh, my health. Uh, for me, it's kind of hard to drive longer distances now like I had done in the past when I used to do national caravans and stuff. So so I took the train. I took the train. I go to the church, and uh, and I'm in the middle of, of giving my – or just about to give my presentation. And all of a sudden, who's walking in the door but Martin Sheen? And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I wish I would have driven because then I could have spent more time up here and, and talked to him. So I was able to, to speak to him, and, and as you know, he's very active in the uh, – in, in, in the human rights issues, like Jane Fonda, Tom Hayden, people like that. So anyways, it was the only time ever in the thousands of speeches that I've given where I wasn't distracted, but while I was talking at the, uh, up there on the altar, whenever I would make a, an important point, I would kind of look in his direction almost to see if he was paying attention. You know, he just kind of glanced really quickly. I didn't want him to notice that I was doing that. And I could see he was really focused. And I thought people like that, like some of the people that you were able to thank and meet, yeah. it's their voice. It's the fact that they have a wide network of people. It's not just celebrity. It's the fact that they can share these stories and, you know, and get it out there. And, and I remember when, when Alex came and spoke because Father G wasn't able to because of his health, uh, Father G's brother was there. Steve Boyle, when he introduced himself, I thought, oh, are you uh, a priest too? And he goes, no, why do you say that? And I said because your name is Boyle. And as you know, they're in Boyle Heights. Right. And, as you know, I, I, I'm Catholic, and I know that a lot of the, uh, the priests take on a name. So I thought Father G had taken on the name Greg Boyle because of Boyle Heights. Right. So Steve Boyle goes, and I go, so why are you named Steve Boyle? And he goes, well, that's our family name. <laughs> I thought it was the name <laughs> he was taken on, but it wasn't. And, yeah, the, the, the power in, um, in these networks that they have, and you mentioned something when you were sharing this story Uh, Your sister, your sister's passing, which I'm really sorry to hear that. You had 11 uh, uh, siblings. How about your other siblings? Did any of them get involved in this type of uh, human rights work that you've done? They
1: they did, and especially my sister, Roberta, who's now living in uh, Biloxi, Mississippi, has done a lot of work Uh, active in human rights. All of my family uh, supported me. excuse me um some of my sisters got married earlier than they should and they that's why they asked me not not to get married right away but uh they uh they all supported me but couldn't be as active as women who had to work and support their families and but i got a hundred percent support from my brothers and sisters but i was probably the most active one and i was early on active As you know, in 68, 69, when the Chicano movement started. I was the first one in my family that was out on the streets uh, demonstrating, taking that kind of leadership. And other other family members, uncles and aunts, supported me after they uh, got over the fear of my being a radical. And an interesting story, in 1970, they were doing the census, and they went to my mother's home in Las Animas, Colorado, and, and they said, Mrs. Avila, can you give us the ethnicity of your 12 children? She said, I had 11 Mexican Americans and one Chicano. I go, all right, mom. She got it straight in 1970, which I was really proud of.
0: But that's quite a validation.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, and and that that time and era, because it was not easy for people to accept in the Chicano-Latino community, the the Chicano movement and the leadership. And, but I think that looking at my sisters, I found out that God had a sense of humor. I said, why did he give them all the beauty and all the knowledge? And, uh, And then he gave me nothing to work with. I had to go out and build it. But if you knew my sisters, they were the ones who stood me up Kept me out of jail, got me off, uh, helped to get me out of drugs and violence, along with the farm workers and Malcolm X. But they were really bright. And, and it's one thing, and, and this is what really makes me proud of the women leadership and our the magnificent mujeres, is that they not only have to deal with the racism that all people of color have to deal with, but they have to deal with the sexism. That's a double whammy. If my, some of my older sisters would have been men, they would have done much more than I did. And and even though it was a struggle for me because they were smarter, uh, they were, they knew how to manage and, and navigate the, the racial system that we have in America. So I know that, and that's why people like Dolores Huerta, the sister that you're talking about, the sister that you had on from LA, who uh, you interviewed in a podcast. Yeah, Josefina, when you, when you meet, and meeting Josefina, I was like, I'm a, I'm amongst a, a celebrity here, because these women who have done so much, sacrificed so much, in spite of the racism, in spite of the sexism, they're really an example for us. And sometimes, the men get the leadership more than the women. I'd like to talk a little bit about that, if you don't mind. Is uh,
0: Not at all. And I thought that was important. That's why, for me, it was an honor to introduce you. To Josefina because she can tell the story only like she can right. and she's saying a lot of the things that you're saying that you have to be her in order to know the things that she went through so so powerful so it was good to have that uh, was able to make that that connection but but go ahead please
1: no she's a, she's a great example like uh, Dolores and others that I've worked with uh, over the years so during my farm worker organizing and I was involved with Teatro in Colorado and one of my great supporters in the farmworker movement and one of the fellow actors in teatro were Danny Valles and his wife Lupe and they also when I organized uh, later on in some demonstrations and building takeovers in uh, the University of Colorado she and Danny were and a lot of other Chicanos and Chicanas were sort of my soldiers and my little army when we took over buildings and did all the political actions so Lupe got cancer, and, uh, and we thought it was breast cancer, but she couldn't get, like a lot of women couldn't, uh, 20 years ago, get the proper exam from their health company. So by the time they found the breast cancer, uh, she needed a bone marrow transplant, a mastectomy a bone marrow transplant. The insurance company would not cover it. We had to sell tamales, do dances, to raise most of the money, and the University of Colorado paid for the last 50,000. But here's Lupe, uh, she was able to live a few more years and a week before she's dying or if you've been with a friend who's dying like from cancer, her skin was gray and her fingernails were black. And and we were talking about the old days, you know, uh, in the early days, 68, 69, 70, 70 to 73, the early days of the Chicano movement in Colorado and all of the things that we did. And Lupe started saying, yeah, they were wonderful. She says, but you know, uh we women were asked to make the signs, make the tacos, show up for the demonstrations, but we were never invited into the strategy meeting. And she says, uh, and that, those men who wouldn't let us in were pigs. I go, yeah, you're right, Lupe, they were. She goes, no, no, I'm talking about you, Magdaleno. You, Leno, <laughs> you were the main pig. You were the leader. And I kept thinking, I go, Lupe, can't you just die, you know? Do you have to tell me the truth? But she was right. She was right. I was wrong. I did not include women in our strategy sessions. I did not give them, at that point, the leadership roles. And I wrote about her stories because her children were there when she was telling me this. You know, I was kind of embarrassed to be brought out in front of her children and her husband and and, uh, be told. But they said, that's our mom, you know. Later on, when I wrote about it, they said she was willing to call an ace an ace, a spade a spade. And if it was wrong, she would let you know. And I'm glad that before she died, she corrected history in my mind and my heart. And not many times do we get a chance to change ourselves. And she had to change me, and I respect and love her for that.
0: Well, good, good for her. And it is so important. And the organizations, and I've been involved, as you know, in, in several. I've always had predominantly women in the leadership roles because it is so important and we can learn so much from them, especially when they're women of color because they have two in, in a way, two strikes against them. Not that they really have it, but I mean, that's the way life treats them sometimes. Right. And you're, you're referring to uh, Colorado. Um, I always have had strong ties to Colorado. I love Colorado. And if I didn't, uh, Uh, If I didn't live in California and I wanted to stay in the United States, Colorado would be the place I'd go to. My first choice is definitely Mexico. But if it was in the United States, it'd be Colorado. And in 2008, that was a big year because that's the year that uh, Senator Barack Obama accepted the nomination to be the candidate for the Democratic Party for president. And I was invited to be the keynote speaker in a big rally that took place. In Denver that day, and I was the final speaker. And after speaking at the end of this massive uh, demonstration, I did a interview with Al Jazeera, and it was going to be myself on on you know Al Jazeera of course in 130 countries, and it was going to be with a, a Republican congressman that uh, we were going to kind of have opposing views and so forth. But when he heard it was me that was just about to go on live he refused to go on. So I had like six or seven minutes to talk about the work about human rights and so on and so forth. And then I was allowed into the stadium to hear uh, Senator Obama accept the nomination. So for me, Colorado has always been a very, very special place. I love Colorado, the spirit of Colorado. And it's so good to hear your stories about Colorado. And in the stories that you were sharing, because you have so many stories, you're one of the people that we're going to want to come back on several times on Buen Hombre because you have so many stories. But you mentioned something that I don't know too much about, about your history. Because I do want to talk about the Cesar Chavez Foundation where I'm intricately uh, involved. But Malcolm X, what about, and, and I, you know, Malcolm X, another historic figure. You mentioned that he has also been instrumental in your, in your life.
1: Well, one of the things that happened was that the University of Colorado when I was there in '66 uh, to '68, is my first time there as a junior. That there were no books really written about Latinos, that about you know our civil rights movement. And so I went to the radical bookstore run by Clancy, this dwarf, uh, and they had four books on blacks and uh, and like two women's books and two environmental books. That's why it's considered the radical bookstore. And SDS students gathered there and black athletes gathered there. And I really got indoctrinated first into the black civil rights movement and uh, everything that they were doing and Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. And I went through a period in um, later in my life after the university where I was dealing in a lot of drugs and a lot of violence. I used to carry two loaded guns and... Had about 20 guys that I'd either given them their first guns or traded them and trained them on them and uh, we we're waiting for the Mexican revolution the Chicano revolution and when I was uh rereading the autobiography of Malcolm X and everything he went through and uh, and studying uh, what you know how he got into the Islamic religion and then when his first visit to Mecca How we started evaluating work. Malcolm X talked about that you could not pimp your own community and organize it and stand up with them at the same time. That means you can't run the ladies, you can't sell drugs. And it's interesting uh, since I've been, since I got out of the the drug business and the violence business, I met a lot of brothers who did the same thing that I did. We thought we were doing great because we gave a discount to people of color. You know, I'd give Latinos and Blacks a discount on my drugs when I was selling them, and it's wrong, you know, and I, and because some of my brothers and sisters got addicted, like my own sister did on drugs. So Malcolm X teaches a principle that if you're going to respect and be with the community, you got to be strong, you got to respect everybody, and he went through a difficult time, like uh, a lot of gang members and other people going to prison and and finding his way and he was an example for me how to be strong to say you're black you're proud you've been black before there was a word black before there was a gray in black before there was a black sand uh and you had to be proud of it and, and i go man this is a powerful guy and then listening to him speak was great i should tell you my other malcolm x story uh it's in one of my uh be in my next book it's called Muslim for a month. So I was in high school as a senior on the wrestling team. Me and this friend of mine, Paul Fernandez, we had a really good wrestling team in our high school. But we had the civic teacher, Mr. Civic's teacher, Mr. Brining, who was very racist. And every almost every class he talked about black people. And you know, we knew because uh, there were no blacks or Muslims or Jews in our hometown, that he was just taking it out on them because he couldn't take it out on the Mexicans, and we were in front of him. And uh, so I asked Paul, and I couldn't read or write very well. I asked Paul, well, what are the Muslims? So we went out to, uh, uh, and what is who is Malcolm X? And we went to the public library. He read me everything about Malcolm X and Muslims. And and I told him, well, you know, we got to have a Malcolm X here in our community to stand up for us. And I'd never met a Black person or a Muslim. And Paul said, and then we read about the religion and how you pray to the East. And Paul said, well, we're going to become Muslims. The next time Mr. Brining talks about bad about Malcolm X and Muslims, we're going to pull our prayer rugs out and bow to the East. And I said to Paul, well, you know, they don't sell any rugs here, uh, any carpets. All they sell is linoleum. So we're going to roll out a piece of linoleum? He says, no. We're going to roll out our gym towels. So, tomorrow when we go to class, you take your gym towel, put it under your desk, and I'll give you the signal. We'll roll them out, and then we'll get down on our knees about to the east. So, I go, okay. You know, this is my first demonstration. And uh, so, we get in there, and the teacher starts going off about Muslims and black Muslims and Malcolm X. And Paul gives me the signal. We reach under our desk, roll out our. uh, our gym towels and get down and kneel to the east and mr brining who's a racist mother fudger starts saying but what are you boys doing and paul says we're muslims and we're praying to the east to mecca <laughs> he says you ain't muslims you're good catholic boys you get up from there because paul says no we're muslim he keeps yelling at us and paul's yelling back and and you know the, all the rest of the students don't know what's going on first demonstration in class and what are muslims and, and what is the prayers to the east? And he keeps yelling. Finally, Paul says, I'm Malcolm Fernandez, and he's Muhammad allah And and <laughs> so you know, we they kept yelling back and forth. And finally, you know, I got a little uncomfortable and I looked at Paul, I gave him the sign of what are they hoping? When can I get up? So he gives me the signals, and not knowing how to end the Muslim Islamic prayer, we made the sign of the cross, and nobody. <laughs> nobody knew the difference so in the following weeks every time he start talking about Muslims we'd roll out our gym towels and he'd stop talking that was my first nonviolent demonstration and I was I love
0: a- that story. yeah I remember that you shared that with me before and it's a fantastic example of like I like to say love is an action not just a word yeah. Well, here is activism as an action not just a word and you and your friend actually take an action not knowing what was going to happen, you know, you could have been kicked out of school or suspended. So that was very progressive and a, a very powerful story. When you were talking about reading Malcolm X, one of the books that influenced me when I was younger was a book by uh, John Griffin, and it's called "Black Like Me." And I remember reading that thinking, "Yeah," and, and I remember reading that thinking, "Yeah, I've uh, yeah, I've always you know going along the same thing. Wondered what it's like." To be uh, a black person, or or a person like this, or that, or whatever, but only you can know it if you are that person. But you got to recognize that because too many people don't recognize that, and they speak for others. You know, they speak for others, and I'm thinking, why is that man talking about women's rights? You know, it should be a woman speaking on that panel, et et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things that you also mentioned that's very important: a lot of people, you know, they fall into these situations thinking it's easy because they see that person up there, that bird Corona giving that speech, and they think, oh, it's so easy to do that. And then with whatever might happen, whatever the circumstances are, and they get into that position, and then they realize it's not easy at all. First of all, you have no credibility. You've never earned it. You really don't know. You think you do, but people see through that. People see through that. And we have wonderful examples of people that are real living testimonies that we cannot forget. And uh, there's one of them just celebrated her birthday recently, and she's a true uh, hero, probably the most powerful uh, woman of color in the country. And that is of course our dear friend, Dolores Huerta. And uh, so with Dolores, um, you mentioned, and, and I've always felt you know, that she's never received the equal recognition that she deserves, like our friend Cesar Chavez has received, just because she's a woman, you know, just because she's a woman. How many times do you hear about United Farm Workers and you don't hear about her? I remember once when I was with her in Las Vegas and president Obama was going to speak at a high school and I was there with her and uh, Bill Richardson. And I remember as we walked in and we were in the audience and people just kind of, there was no assigned seating, but I saw that there was a seat in the front row and people recognized the Lotus and, and she was able to sit in that seat. And I sat right behind her and as the president was going around speaking, I kept on making hand signals and he finally saw me to point at her, to point at Dolores, and right away he recognized her and he and he, you know, he you know, he he praised, here we are with with us Dolores Huerta, si se puede and all that, you know, that she originated. And it's so important to recognize that. And we cannot forget, because you know, Dolores like all of us is not getting any younger. And uh, she is such an icon. And uh, so you talk about the Cesar Chavez Foundation and your involvement uh, with that. And and we will address, of course, the uh, Dolores after I said all that. But as far as the Cesar, and and of course, Dolores Huerta has her foundation. I was just up in Bakersfield not so long ago. But let's talk about the, uh, because you were involved in the founding uh, or directing the Cesar Chavez Foundation. What is your involvement there?
1: Well, well, my involvement originally was, you know, I was working for Amnesty International, and Cesar had invited me to uh, the Farmworker Convention in uh, 1992 and uh, to speak. And he introduced me, said how I was one of the great organizers and talked on about, you know, all the wonderful things I'd done in Delano and Colorado. And and I was laughing to myself. I said, because we used to call Cesar Elindio, right? Uh, quiere el indio What does he want? Because he was buttering mm-hmm. me up. Because I I was an organizer, and I knew the really great organizers. I was not one of them. I was in the middle of the pack, but I was a, I was a consistent organizer. So Cesar, uh, we're picketing Safeway after the convention. He grabbed me by the elbow, and I said, because uh, they used to pay us $5 a week, 10 for food, in 1970. And this is 1992. And Cesar says, uh, well, you know, Magdalena, we need you back. Would you come back and work for the union? And I go, well, why would I want to do that, Cesar? He said, we've doubled the wages. I said, really, $10? He goes, yeah, isn't that great? I go, oh man, you gotta be crazy. And then uh, he had the audacity to die that next year. And Artie and Paul Chavez, Dolores and and David Martinez came down and we had lunch in LA and had a pretty cushy job with as regional director for Amnesty International. And They asked me if I would come up and uh, help start the Cesar Chavez Foundation. And I asked them, well, what's the wages? They said, $10 a week and 20 for food. I said, yeah, I'll do it. I went home and my wife said, uh, uh, how did you do in the negotiation for wages? I said, I doubled my salary. She said, oh, you're a good man. But, you know, the reason that I wanted to go back, no matter what the price I had to pay, is that by being, and you know this from being part of movements, Enrique, is that we can never pay back what we learned, what they gave to us. So I said if I can give a little bit back to honor Cesar Chavez, to bring out his legacy, which is not only the legacy of Cesar Chavez, it's a legacy of Dolores, it's a legacy of the Filipino brothers, the Black brothers, the Jewish volunteers and lawyers that we had. It's really the legacy of everybody who contributed to the farm worker movement. And Cesar knew that. And that's what he taught us. And so I said, and I worked there for uh, two and a half years and before I went to El Salvador and got the foundation going and I go back every once in a while. And Paul was, who runs the foundation, I was having a meeting with his board and he introduced me uh, again, buttering me up saying, you know, what a great guy I was and how I was the first director. But I think all of us, whether it's with the Cesar Foundation or with its immigrant rights or women's rights, environmental rights, we're always giving back uh, and supporting the new leadership and, and people that are doing the work. Because I learned so much uh, about organizing from Cesar, Fred Ross, the Filipinos, Brother Pete Belasco, Larry Italiang, others, that um, I owed them. I owe them, and you know, the same thing when I went to Atlanta with Amnesty International after Dr. King's death, I was able to work with Coretta Scott King and three of her children, with Reverend Joe Lowry, who was then head of Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and other people. So when we have opportunities in life, we should give. And with the Cesar Chavez Foundation, we started from nothing, and now they're really going in A lot of things have been done in his honor. And recently, I was up there too with some other former organizers because we went up to campaign for Dolores' son who was running for a political office a few months ago. And we stopped by to the headquarters to uh, say a little prayer at Cesar's grave where he and Dolores are buried. And-
0: uh, Well, not 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 Dolores, you meant Helen.
1: Dolores, I mean Helen. God forbid I buried Dolores over there. Uh, mm-hmm. But but then we went on to see Dolores and, and her son, Emilio. But uh, that gravesite, the way it is, uh, I was there when we were doing the original plannings for the gravesite to honor him and how to do it. Uh, and I was obviously there for Cesar's funeral. But uh, just being there, you remember everything that we had. Uh, the only two nonviolent people, the, the, the only people they were violent against, that I saw around, around Cesar, were his two dogs, Welga and Boyka. We used to laugh, he says, you might be nonviolent, but your dogs aren't. You exactly. had to have those dogs because there's a lot of death threats on him. And you know, Helen Chavez, who a lot of people don't know, but she was as tough as Cesar Chavez. Absolutely. And when she was, when they first started the union and they had no money, she went back to the fields to work, to support Cesar and her kids. And when you met with her, and she was on the board of the foundation, Helen Chavez is tough as nails and uh, yeah. and earthy. She used some earthy language on me once in a while, get me going in the right direction. But I loved her and respected her. And, and so it's not just Cesar, it's his whole family. What did the, the kids give up? Uh, same with Dolores. What did all her children give up? Uh, it's amazing the sacrifices. You know, we all sacrificed to get where we were,
0: or what we've done. Absolutely. And I was, I was, uh, yeah. it was just like I mentioned when I was in Bakersfield, and uh, it was before the uh, elections, also to support Emilio and to talk uh, with uh, the Dolores Huerta Foundation and and so forth, because it is so important that we continue to. To move forward, and like Cesar used to always tell us, it's not about an individual. It's about a movement. It's a movement. So when the person is no longer here, uh, we need to continue to move forward, and that's something that you have done. And you're definitely uh, a bad hombre in every good sense of the word. And in closing, because you've talked about other bad hombres, that's and Malcolm, and Corky, etc., and, and magnificent mujer, whether it's Dolores or Josefina or Elena, uh, and, uh, we're, we're, as a matter of fact, we were just about to go to the, the, um, up to the, 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 uh, the center with Paul and Monica on our retreat with, with, uh, with some other friends of mine. It was their retreat, uh, Yadi, uh, Yadi, who, who leads a program with DACA students that are PhD candidates. Right. We had everything set up because like, we were talking about introductions and I go, you got to work with Paul. You know, they got a they got a center up there. We've done caravans and stopped there and paid homage, et cetera. So we'll be doing that after this pandemic situation calms down a bit, because it'll never be back to normal 100%. But in closing, uh, uh, Leno, a couple of things. We want to know where people can get a hold of your books, your poems, et cetera, et cetera. So they have links to that. And also, if you could do us the honor of reading the poem, Bad Hombre, in closing, that would be very powerful.
1: Oh, thanks. Uh, right now, the, where you can get my poems and and more of my stories that'll be in the next book and the two books that I have, uh, Los Cuatro, which came out in 1969, and looking for my wings, uh, it's easiest if you just write to me at leno at magdaleno dot org and get me And if you don't, and if you have trouble, or you can call me at 206-618- 9909. Uh, you know, uh, Enrique, talking about a bad hombre is uh, i have to tell you um when i met you at uh league of women's voter thing there and i saw the bad hombre hats, and i told you about my poem of all the speakers that we had there that day were who were all very good you were the only one who lit my fire because uh, you started taking on the audacity of the president and his racism And I thought, here's a man who is willing to stand up no matter what the price is and tell the truth. And I told my wife, I got to meet this man because when you see somebody who's on fire, you want to touch them. And so I stole a little bit of energy from you that day, just so you know. So it's not a one way street, we inspire each other. So, right after uh, this guy, Donald Trump, was running for office, he started talking. in his first talk, when he came down that silly escalator in his hotel, he started talking about immigrants that would come and cross the border to rape, to pillage, and, and do bad things to the country. And he started talking about bad hombres. I said, hombres? You can't even say hombres. And I got really upset. So uh, I was at my home. And at that point, I was living in Philadelphia. I said, you know, after I got through uh, silently uh, uh, with my anger, I said, I got to write something and talk about who the men and women are, in particular the men that uh, come over and help this country, and they're not bad hombres. But here's my response called I am the bad hombre. I am the bad hombre. I am the one they told you about, the bad hombre, the bad man. They told you to hide the riches, the children, the women, and on occasion, even zipper the dog. They said I was sent by my government, loaded down with drugs, loaded down with evil thoughts, of murder, rape, and uncontrolled violence. I am the bad hombre. Yep, you probably saw me. Sometimes I had on a straw hat or a baseball cap. My car and clothes were not new both worn out, just like my back and the rest of my body. Sometimes you saw me bent over, harvesting something that would soon be on your dinner table, something fresh and beautiful, just for you and your family, all of it brought to you by the bad hombre. Sometimes I was in the yard with my weed blower or trimming your bushes, putting poisons on your weeds. That burned my skin, eyes, and throat. Sometimes I was washing your cars, making them shine and smell good just for you. I am the bad hombre that had his family making your meals, caring for your children, for your infants, cleaning your house, and almost everything. But nothing, but nothing but a truth commission could clean your history. It's too deep, too deep and too filled with hate for anyone to sweep it under the rug. I am the bad hombre who is paid in cash under the table while benefits are denied. I am the bad hombre who struggles to live a decent life while others call us names tainted by racism and fear, making me out to be a monster that I am not. I am the bad hombre who somehow has become the foundation of your everything. I am the bad hombre, not your nightmare, but a friend, an amigo who wants to dream and live in a better world alongside of you and all of the others. I want nothing more than a reasonable chance to believe in the moon and dance with the wind to build a world of peace and love for any, everyone, under the sun. See, I am the bad hombre. There
0: it is. Powerful, very powerful Leno. And, and we will dance with the wind once again. And and that poem is so powerful. It uh, really chokes me up to, to hear you say it and, um, and I applaud all your work, and, and and one of the things that I often ask the guest is a one-sentence answer into the question, to Leno, what is love? That's a difficult question. I think it's... Um... And, and not only is it a difficult question, you had the same reaction... And I've had people from Hollywood, people from the, you know, different communities. There is always that pause because it's a question that people never have really, you know, thought out. They don't expect that question. Uh, so yeah, so yeah, but go ahead.
1: I think it, love is being able to accept your own frailties. And accepting others' frailties, and opening doors to each other's hearts, uh, because we come—we're—we're we're all uh, damaged in some way by society and violence in the world. And I think we're—we're we're different pieces of a puzzle. That when we open our arms and our hearts, we fit together. So, I—I I think it's recognizing. Not who you are, but what who you aren't.
0: And recognizing the same in other people. Beautiful, very powerful. Well, Magdaleno, Leno Rose Avila, you are a bad hombre. You are a buen hombre. You are a magnificent mujer. You're all, right. all of those it, Yeah, you're all of those things and it's an honor to, uh, have you join us today on the podcast. We're going to have you back. We want to thank you very much. And on behalf of Sarah Bella, the producer, myself, Enrique Morones, your host. Muchisimas gracias. we got to stay on with that, uh, that journey that takes us to the light. And that takes place when you practice the fact that love is an action, not just a word. So listen to our podcast. We're on Apple, iTunes, Stitcher, tune in. MagnificentMujer.org, BuenHombre.org, every Tuesday at 3 o'clock. Amor, si se puede. Gracias. Yeah. That was good. We did it. We did it. We did it. Now we're going to do it in Spanish. No, I'm just kidding. Órale, <laughs> nosotros aquí?